Well, good evening and welcome back to Lesson 10. We've taken a fast journey in the hours that have just passed and trust that it has been a blessing to you. And My passion, the passion of my heart is to see you blessed because the things that we're talking about are life issues. Hopefully God will bless and minister to you and to each of us in a way that will open up new avenues, will broaden our horizons, make us see that There's so much more available in God than what we have known thus far. We come to the last lesson, and it's entitled, Meeting with God in the Realms of His Glory. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, John is testifying about his experience. And he says in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, John makes a really remarkable statement. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And what John was saying was, I was 70 years old when this happened. He was the only one of the original disciples ever to see old age. All the others had died as martyrs. They had been crucified beheaded, killed for their faith. But God had sovereignly and supernaturally kept John alive, safe and protected because John's work on the earth was not yet done. There was still one more thing that God needed John to do and that was to write and to record the book that we call the book of Revelation. But he said, I was on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos was a little small island for prisoners. It was almost like Alcatraz, if you've ever been to San Francisco and seen the island out in the middle of the bay. Patmos was like a prison, a place where John had been imprisoned for his faith. It was an elderly man. And he was in this damp, cold, dark, filthy, stinking prison because of his faith in Jesus. But he made an amazing statement. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it was in that place of intimacy with God, the glory that was there, that anointing that was on him, it was in that place that he began to have this vision and these experiences and had this life-altering encounter with the risen Christ, with the risen Jesus that was far more powerful than he ever had with Jesus before in the three years that he had been Jesus' most beloved, most devoted disciple. John had an experience with Jesus that was unlike anything that he'd ever seen. And he described him. He said his head were like white wool, verse 14, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if we're fined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and in death. This was the glory that Jesus had prayed for in John 17 that we looked at at an earlier lesson together. This was the glory that Jesus petitioned the Father for at the night that he was to be betrayed, right as he was to go out to Gethsemane. He said, Father, return to me. Give me back. Restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the world was. Well, that's the glory that John is seeing at this point. The glory that John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it has been titled, was the glory that now belongs to the church. But John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what's he talking about? What's John referring to? Brothers and sisters, in every generation, in every generation in the church, there are people that God has raised up to lead the church, to bless the church, to minister to the church, to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to build the kingdom in the earth. There have been many, many people that were apostles, many, many people that were prophets, many, many people in every generation that have been evangelists and pastors and teachers. Many, many people God has raised up and used in ministry in a vast variety of ways. However, these people have by and large been people that helped the church to maintain. They were maintainers. God had called them to help maintain and support and lead and encourage the church. However, in every generation, God has reserved for himself a very, very small group of people. And these people were not maintainers. These were the men and yes, these were the women that God anointed and God used to take the church to higher places of revelation, to take the church another step forward, not just to hold the ground and maintain the present status of things, but to take the church another step from glory to glory, as Paul referred to in his letter to the Corinthian church, to take them out farther, to take them in deeper, to draw them in closer to God than what they had previously known. Now, these people were a diverse group. Some were very educated. Take John Wesley as an example. Anglican minister, very cultured, very educated, a scholar, a theologian, degrees from Oxford, a thinker, a philosopher, a man disciplined and skilled, and yet God used John Wesley as a reformer to bring revival in the 1700s and to open the heavens and to bring the revelation and the manifestation of God's glory in the earth. Compare the life of a John Wesley to a life of perhaps, well, James J. Seymour is a prime example. James J. Seymour was a black man. And people in those days, in the 1800s, Black men and black women were not looked at as equals to white people. There was bigotry and racism in the hearts of people. And yet, here's James J. Seymour, 
a man that was blind in one eye and not schooled in the way that Wesley was. In fact, when James J. Seymour went to school in Texas at Parham's Bible School, because of the laws of that day demanding segregation, James J. Seymour was not allowed in the state of Texas at that time to come to a school with white people. And so what they did is they put all the class around the door, put their chairs around the door, and set James's chair just on the opposite side of the door, and James is incorporated right into the class that way to get around the laws. Who would have ever dreamed that God would have used James J. Seymour as the firebrand? He would have used James J. Seymour as the man from very humble backgrounds, not educated at the university, not educated at the college, but that God would raise up James J. Seymour and use James J. Seymour to become the man that would spark the great Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California. It was said of James J. Seymour that when that revival came, he was so intimidated by people that, my dear brothers and sisters, he preached with an apple box over his head because he couldn't look at people. And yet God changed, changed, changed the world, changed our nation, and changed the church. Every Pentecostal denomination in America today traces its origins back to Azusa Street and the life of James J. Seymour, the man that God used, an unlikely candidate by some people's standards. But you see, God never looks on the outside. God always looks on the heart. And God's not interested in talent. He's not interested in ability. If you're very educated, if you're very intelligent, if you're very articulate, if you're very handsome, if you're very beautiful, if you're very skilled, if you're very knowledgeable in all things, I have good news for you today. God can use you anyway, in spite of all those things. In spite of it all, His grace will function. God can use you in spite of those things. What God's looking for, church, is not ability, it's availability. As Catherine Kuhlman used to say, it's not silver vessels or golden vessels that God wants, it's yielded vessels. God sees a yielded vessel. He comes and He moves in that person's life. Some great reformers of the past were men. There were other people that took the church to a higher place who were women. Women like Mariah Woodsworth Etter. Women like... Amy Simple McPherson, women like Catherine Kuhlman, that God used in a powerful, powerful way to take the church to a higher level, to raise the level of the river of God that was flowing in the earth. Some are black, some are white, some were Americans, some were from other nations, some were women, some were men, some were educated, some were not educated. Some had great talent, others had virtually no talent. But every person that God has ever used in any successive generation to do more than just maintain the church, but to actually take the church to a higher level, though diverse in their male, female, gender, though diverse in their background, their color, their culture, their education, and their upbringing, they all shared one simple common characteristic. Every one of them were men and women that knew how to meet with God in the realms of glory. They had made a discovery. They had found out. Speaking of John Wesley, 
Someone once asked John Wesley the question. They said, Mr. Wesley, why do all these thousands of people come to your meetings to hear you preach? And John Wesley made this statement. I have discovered how to set myself on fire with God and people just come to watch me burn. John Wesley had made a discovery. John Wesley had discovered some of the old truths that go back all the way to the Old Testament of men and women that lived in an extraordinary measure of God's presence, of God's glory. They'd found out how to meet with God. One of those women that did that was a woman by the name of Jean Guion, G-U-Y-O-N, also referred to as Madame Guion. She wrote a little book in 1635, much to her own chagrin, because she didn't want to write it. Her friends had said to her, you've got to write some of these discoveries down. You can't just grow old and die and not leave a record of this, what God has taught you. And she really didn't want to write a book, but people that loved her and had received from her ministry just continued to encourage her and encourage her. Finally, she put it down in a little paperback form. It was called Experiencing the Depth of Jesus Christ. And that little pamphlet that was published in France in 1635 set off a firestorm. It came into a head-on collision with the spirit of religion in France at that time. And ultimately, Jean Guion was put in prison because of what she had written in that book. And the scribes and Pharisees, wouldn't seize and couldn't seize, went house to house through every village and every town of France asking people, do you have a copy of that woman's book? And if you do, hand it over. And they collected all the copies of Jean Guillaume's book. And they had public book burnings in the city square as an example of what they called heresy. Because her basic assertion was, you can know God. And in that little book, and I recommend everyone get it, everyone needs a copy of that, and you need to read that. Jean Guillaume in 1635 had discovered how to get in the presence of God. Jean Guillaume had made the amazing discovery that was reserved only for a few in any given generation of how to actually experience God, how to actually come to a place where God would meet with us. And these have been the people. Now that little book, oh, by the way, Experience in the Depths of Jesus Christ, though it was banned and though it was burned in France in the 1600s, my brothers and sisters, that little book today is sold in Christian bookstores all over the world and millions of people have read it. You see, the truth will always outlive a lie. And what Jean Guillaume had written was revelation knowledge. It was revelation knowledge that John knew about when he said, I'm on the Isle of Patmos in this wretched, cold, dark, damp prison. But he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John had found out something. He'd made a discovery somewhere along the line. In this lesson, I want us to think together and learn together some simple principles of how you and I individually and how the church corporately can meet with God. Now, it needs to be understood why most Christians don't enjoy prayer. Most Christians don't like to pray. They just don't like to pray. And the reason they don't enjoy prayer, sometimes it's a lack of desire to fellowship with God. Other times 
It's a lack of discipline in their personal life. But thirdly, and more importantly, there are many people that just find prayer hard. It's just hard to do. I saw an interview on television with a pastor of one of the largest churches in America. And I imagine he probably regretted having said this after he said it. The whole world heard him. But he said, I've never prayed more than 15 minutes in my life. He said, when I pray 15 minutes, I'm prayed out. He said, I don't know what else to pray for. I bet he got some cards and letters for that. But he said it. And yet he pastored a church of thousands and thousands of people. The reason most Christians don't enjoy prayer is it's just hard. It's hard coming to God with the gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy, and I'll take all you can give me. Gimme, 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 gimme. Because after we've done that a few times and we didn't get it, it's like, I don't like doing this. Because when I come to pray, it's like, what are we going to pray about now? You know, I mean, I've been praying gimme, 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 and I hadn't seen any of it yet, so where's this going? And a lot of Christians just don't like to pray. It's not fun. It doesn't satisfy. The lack of desire and lack of discipline are problems in themselves. But prayer that is hard can be overcome by knowledge. There's a wonderful scripture that says, My people perish for the lack of knowledge. The reason prayer for many is so unappealing is that their prayers, firstly, are prayed only with their natural understanding. Secondly, their prayers are need-based prayers. And a typical prayer that is based upon what people need, want, and desire. Most Christians pray, and their prayers are based on what they individually need, want, and desire. For many, the purpose of prayer is to get something, change something, avoid something, escape something, acquire something in some way to be blessed. But the true goal of prayer is not to get something from God, but our highest calling in prayer, our highest desire in prayer should be to meet with God, to have a meeting with God, to get into the realms of His presence and not just spend time listing all of our endless needs, wants, and desires and thinking that we will be heard for our much speaking and that the longer we beg, the more we're going to get eventually in time. Our goal in prayer should not be trying to get God to come out of His realm into our realm to fix all of our problems, but yet our goal in prayer should be that God would get us out of our realm and into His realm that we could just enjoy Him and meet with Him and love Him. There is a secret place in God, beloved, and I do not have time this afternoon to get into the fullness of this, but it's referred to in Psalm 91. Read that on your own, where the Bible says there is a secret place. Those that abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Let's go read it. I'm going to goof it up if I try to quote it without reading it exactly. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High God shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. And then it goes on to talk about all the benefits that will come from this. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Everybody wants to know where the secret place is. How many here want to know where the secret place is? I can't tell you because it's a secret. There is no recipe for it. It's a secret place of intimacy and fellowship. 
that is birthed out of a love-based, not a need-based relationship with God. It is the place that Jesus talked about in John 15 where he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those that abide in me will bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. That's the secret place of the abiding presence of God, of living in that place. The way most people pray is by their natural understanding. And they've never discovered this amazing place of intimacy and fellowship and being close to God and near to God, near to His presence. It all goes back to this process that we've talked about throughout this course of an open heaven. And what that open heaven is, is when the barrier that separates the eternity realm from the natural realm divides and the contents of the heavenly realm comes into our lives and our churches and our cities and our nations in a way that can be experienced by people. And part of that process is through the role of worship. Very quickly, I want us to cover several things that worship is not. Worship is not an attempt to make God feel better about Himself by telling Him how wonderful He is. He's doing quite well. He has no problem with poor self-esteem. Worship is not us telling God how wonderful He is as a cheap form of flattery either, meant to impress Him so that He will hear and He will answer our prayers. He knows what's in our hearts already. And the content of our heart is always more important than the abundance of our words. I don't listen much to what people say. I look at what people are. If you really want to see what a person really believes and what a person really values and what a person really is all about, don't listen to what they tell you. Look at the fruit in their life and see what they are and see what they've become and see what they're reproducing. Because my brothers and sisters, we may teach one thing out of our head, out of our knowledge, out of our experience, but we will always duplicate what's in the confines of our own heart. And it's heart that God looks at. It's the heart that God sees. And what worship does is brings us to a place where we prepare ourselves by getting our hearts and getting our attitudes off of our realm and on His realm, and it prepares us to worship Him and to love Him and to honor Him and to connect with Him and to see the heavens open and His glory come and meet with us. Because so few Christians ever take the time necessary to come close to God, and the reference on that is James chapter 4, look over there with me very quickly. And if it's not already underlined in your Bible, this is the best time to underline it right now. Because there's a powerful revelation truth here where James says in chapter 4, and this whole chapter is a powerful chapter, read it and realize he's talking to Christians. And he's calling them adulterers and adulteresses who love the world more than they love God. And he says that the Spirit who dwells in us, verse 5, yearns jealously over us. Verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in verse 8, the Bible says, Draw near to God, and God will draw near to us. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to us. Please hear my heart. God's looking for people that want Him. 
He's looking for people that want the revelation of His glory. People that will approach Him and will come and draw Him out. I had one of the most amazing experiences last week at that zoo in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've always loved chimpanzees. You don't see chimpanzees in American zoo. It's not politically correct. You know, I mean, people think, well, chimpanzees, if you believe in evolution, well, that's cousin Louie. And so they don't imprison. But they had chimps in this zoo. And they had a big plexiglass window here in this big compound this open-air place where these chimps were. And I was standing there looking in at these chimps. And one of these chimps came over to that window and got this far from me and started looking at me. And then he tapped on the window, and I tapped back. And he squealed. And then he tapped again. And I tapped again. And then he tapped, and I tapped. And then he tapped, and he ran to the window next door and squealed and beat on that window. And I ran over to that window and tapped on that window. And now he squeals and he runs to another window and beats. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had been enticed into a game of tag with this chimpanzee. And I was having the time of my life playing with this animal that is controlling me because I love chimps anyway and always been fascinated with them. And now I've got one that has sought me out and has drawn me into a relationship and is tapping on the window and running to other windows and I'm chasing him back and forth in this zoo and people are looking at me and thinking that's the craziest thing I've ever seen to see a 52-year-old man acting like that. I couldn't care less. I must have been six years old again enjoying this chimpanzee. And that whole thing happened because he came up to that window and he approached me and he drew near to me and he reached out and he tried to make contact with me at some level and I just melted. James chapter 4 says, If we'll draw near unto God, if we'll come near unto Him, He will draw near unto us. That we can literally attract His glory and attract His presence only by the simple act of drawing near to Him. Such a powerful, powerful truth. You see, church, knowing about God can come from books, lectures, schools, videos, classes, education, and degrees. We can get all kinds of knowledge about God in those ways, but we will never really know God, really know Him personally until we come to that place of experience where we draw near unto Him and He draws near unto us. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to teach you a little discovery that only a few people in other generations ever really understood, that God is making available to whosoever will may come in this exciting day in which the church is now living. And it is how to meet with God in the realms of His glory. Would you turn with me, please, to Psalm 100? There is a mighty truth there that most of us read so quickly and we race right by it and we never really fully come to the place of really appropriating the reality. Psalm 100, let's begin with verse 1. 
Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. In verse 4, the Bible says, Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, His truth endures to all generations. My dear brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that prayer is not fun for most people is their prayer goes something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you this day in the name of Jesus. I love you, I praise you, I worship you, and I adore you. Now, Father, let's get down to business. Today, I need you to do this and this and this and this and this. I need you to fix this problem, that problem, this problem, that problem. Pay this bill, pay that bill. Help me with this, help me with that. Heal this, heal that. Do this, do that. On and 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 on. God never taught us to pray that way. And one of the great secrets that people like John knew and Jean Guion knew and Wesley knew and selected individuals that have taken the church to higher levels of glory in other generations had discovered is how to get in His presence first. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 100 to enter His gates with thanksgiving. Most prayer prayed by many people is prayed out of disappointment and it is prayed out of hurt. It's problem-centered and it's struggle-oriented. And there's almost an undercurrent within it all that if you're such a loving, wonderful, heavenly Father that loves me as your child, why did you let this happen? How many people have ever heard somebody say when something went bad, Oh, God, let a storm come, a tornado, a hurricane, a fire. Even insurance companies in your policy calls it an act of God. And that's where most people come from, whether it's ever spoken or not, is from that mindset. What thanksgiving does is takes us beyond the hurt, the disappointment, the grief, the sorrow, the struggle of our present-day circumstances. The Bible says, enter His gates with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, not with a long list of needs, wants, and desires, but to come into His presence, to enter His gates with thanksgiving, and secondly, to come into His courts with praise. Right now, I want us just as we come to the concluding moments of this course, If you want to leave your Bible open to that scripture, that's fine. But glory to be understood must be experienced. And right now, I want everybody here to close your eyes, bow your heads, and I want you to think of anything that you're genuinely thankful for. Anything in your life. If God has given you a good job, God's given you a good husband or a good wife, if God has answered a prayer for you, If God has done something and you know it came as a loving gift from your Father in heaven, everyone think of something that you're thankful for. And let's begin to thank Him. Not asking Him for anything. Don't ask Him for anything. Just begin to thank Him. Not making petition. Not telling Him about the problems. Whatever you're thankful for, begin to thank Him. Father, we thank You this day. Father, we thank You this day. 
Father, we thank you this day. Lord, we enter your gates this day with thanksgiving in our heart because you're so good to us and you're so wonderful to us. And today, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your kindness. Father, we thank you that you've made us your children. And today, right here, Father, we come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts because you've been so good to us. Jesus, you're so wonderful. We love you so much. We thank you today. We praise you today. We worship you today. We bless you today. Lord, we thank you for your glory. We thank you that you are living in a day and a time in the earth that, Lord, we can experience you. That in this moment of history, Lord, the heavens are opening and your glory is beginning to come in the earth. Oh, God, we love you and we worship you. And we thank you for that today. And we want to yield everything to you because we want to be a part of whatever you're doing. Just continue to thank him for anything you're genuinely thankful for. Now, when you begin to sense his presence, I want you to raise your hand and then put it back down. All right, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Now, just stay in thanksgiving. Now, for those of you that are beginning to sense his presence right now, I want for you to move now from not just thanksgiving but to worship and begin telling him right now that you love him. Father, we love you today. We worship you today. We thank you today. We bless you. We love you. We worship you. We honor you. We give you praise. We give you glory. You're so wonderful. Lord, you're so wonderful. Now, some people move in very quickly. Some it happens in a matter of seconds. Some it takes a minute or so. Some take five minutes, ten minutes. The time factor is not an issue. What is important is that we not move into worship until we've begun to sense His presence. And we just stay in thanksgiving until we begin to sense His presence upon us. The presence of God is here. Lord, we thank You. We enter Your gates right now by thanksgiving. And we come into Your courts with praise. And Father, we worship you. We worship you. We worship you. We love and adore you today. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that we can live like this. How many are sensing his presence now? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And just stay in thanksgiving. Nothing is happening just yet. But when you begin to feel His glory, then begin to worship Him. Say, Lord, I love you and I worship you and I praise you and I honor you. Now, my brothers and sisters, the reason I shared this with you is we don't have a worship team here. We don't have music. We don't have keyboards. We don't have singers. We don't have a CD. But we can live like this. And come right into His presence wherever we are. If we will not come by begging and pleading and gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. 
But if we'll just begin to thank Him, Lord, we just thank You for Your presence. We thank You for Your glory. We thank You for Your touch. We thank You for the fact that as we draw near unto You by thanksgiving, the windows of heaven begin to open and Your glory shall come upon us. And we worship You. 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 Now just loving and worshiping and praising and honor Him. Presence of God's all over this place. You see, we've made it so hard. And it's really quite simple. It's remarkably simple. And this is what people found out in other generations, is how to get in the Spirit, as John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You see, if we'll only take the time to love Him and to worship Him and to praise Him and to honor Him and get in the realms of His presence, my dear brothers and sisters, prayer becomes effortless and time passes so quickly. And it's an ease to it. It's a simplicity to it. Now just keep worshiping Him. Just keep thanking Him right now. God wants us to live in this. And you can do this at home. You can do this at work. You can do this anywhere. It's just come before His presence with thanksgiving instead of want, need, and desire. Now let me give you another little secret as we close. And the secret is this. When you feel His presence and it begins to seem to wane, it begins to seem to pass away, that's not God backing away. That's God not withdrawing His glory. It's that we're slipping out. And when that begins to happen, what do you do? You just return to thanksgiving. Just begin to thank Him again for something you're genuinely thankful for. And stay in thanksgiving until that presence begins to return. And when you sense His glory again, then begin to worship Him and worship Him and love Him. Father, we thank You today. Father, we worship You today. Lord, I ask You today, touch them with the fire of Your glory. May they never be the same. Fill them to overflowing, changed forever from one level of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you.